0: Morning everybody, Uh, my name is Michael, I'm one of the elders here, and I'm reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through to the end of the chapter. Um, Please read along with me. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your names to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here I am, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it was not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted.
1: me pray again. Lord God, help us now to focus in on our our great Saviour, Jesus. Encourage us in Him to press on in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, growing up, we used to go out to my net and grandpa's farm quite a lot. And there was always lots to do on the farm. My brother and I, we enjoyed riding the motorbike around, exploring around the farm, you know, the different nooks and crannies of the place. We loved making cubbies using old discarded farm equipment. And when my cousins were there, we used to play a game called sardines. Has anyone ever played sardines? Yep. It's a variation of hide and seek. Basically, one person would go off and hide while everyone else stayed in the same place and count. After counting, you're on your own, on your own looking for the person who's hid. And the first person to find them wins, the last person to find them loses. Now, my brother was the youngest, so he was often the last person left looking. Looking. And I remember once him being left on his own, still looking, while the rest of us went off somewhere else on the farm. It was our older cousin's idea, but to my shame, I just joined in and played along. I didn't speak up. I did nothing to stop them. I abandoned my own brother and left him without help on his own somewhere on the farm. Has something like that ever happened to you? Have you been left on your own? Left hung out to dry by someone, perhaps? Or have you been abandoned by people that should have had your back? I think all of us know what it's like to be left stranded, to be left helpless on our own. And that's why after digging into Hebrews 2 this week, I can't help but be thankful Thankful that Jesus doesn't treat me the same way that I treated my brother. Thankful that Jesus hasn't abandoned me and left me helpless and without hope, even though that's what I deserve. It really is a wonderfully rich passage, the rest of chapter 2 this week, uh, that shows us why following Jesus is worth it. It assures us that Jesus is right there beside us every step of the way on the way to glory. That's what this passage does. It's wonderful encouragement to press on with him. So have your Bibles open at chapter 2. You might remember last week from chapter 1, the focus on the Son's majesty. And as I said before, this week the focus is on his humanity. Because it's only Jesus who is fully God and fully human, who can be the man we need, the saviour we need and the helper we need. Our man, our saviour and our helper. They're the three things about Jesus' humanity we'll drill into this morning. First, Jesus is our man, our representative man His rule, his dominion is the focus. But his humanity made him seem inferior to angels. Remember how the author picks up the angels all the way through chapter 1 to show that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, the fact that he was human made him seem inferior to the angels. And so the author picks up the angels again and he uses them as a launching pad to make his point. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. Now, the key word here is subjected. To be subject to someone is to be ruled by them. And the world to come, the writer is saying, will not be subjected to angels. Angels will not rule the world to come. And so the question is, who will? To whom has God subjected the world to come? And the answer the writer points to is back in Psalm 8, back in the Old Testament in Psalm 8. And I love the way that he introduces Psalm 8 in verse 6. If you're not good at remembering where stuff is in the Bible, let this encourage you. The writer says, verse 6, but there is a place where someone testified. He's talking about Psalm 8, maybe he forgot. I don't know but here's Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Now these verses are about where humanity fits in God's created order. And you can see from Psalm 8 that it's a high and lofty place, isn't it? God is mindful of mankind. He cares for them. In fact, the psalmist says in verse 7 that God has crowned humanity with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. And that's the phrase that the writer of Hebrews wants to pick up and explore some more, verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. There's that word subject again, or subject. Absolute rule and dominion. That's what's being stressed. Did you notice the double negative there? God left nothing that is not subject to them, just to make it really clear. That's what's taught in Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews is simply pointing that out. In God's created order, everything was subjected by God to humanity. And Psalm 8 itself, it's looking back to Genesis 1, isn't it? Where God made people in His image and commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it. In the beginning, God created humanity to rule over all of His creation under His loving rule. He put everything under their feet. He left nothing that is not subjected to them. But... Does that seem like an accurate picture of things now? Does it ring true that everything is under our feet? Now, I think the answer has to be, not really. Creation is hardly subject to us. It's hardly under our control, is it? If it was, we wouldn't be hearing about devastating earthquakes killing over 45,000 people in Syria and Turkey, would we? or closer to home, wouldn't there be less chaos in our families, in our workplace, in our relationships? In our house, we we can't even keep one room tidy for very long. Everything under humanity's rule, there seems to be a disconnect between what we read in Psalm 8 and what we experience in life today. But did you notice our passage acknowledges that that disconnect? Verse 8 again, the next part of verse 8, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. If humans are supposed to rule the world, something's not right, something has gone wrong and the thing that's not right is us. We've gone wrong, we've failed to live up to the role that God's given us in creation as rulers. In Genesis 1, God appoints humanity as rulers, but we know in Genesis 3 that humanity throws off the loving rule of God and tries to go it alone. It's rebellion. It's what the Bible calls sin. Everyone, from Adam onwards, fails to obey God. So everyone fails to rule the world as God intended under him. That's the bad news. But there is good news, really good news, and that is where we've failed as God's appointed rulers. Jesus has succeeded, and that's and it's at this point that where we see why the author of Hebrews is so interested in Psalm eight because he wants to show us how Jesus fulfils God's design for creation. The language of Psalm 8 ultimately points to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. You see it in verse 9, look at verse 9. We've just heard that we do not see everything subjected to humanity, but then verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Did you know this is the first time the writer uses the name Jesus in the letter? And it's to great effect, I reckon, pointing to his humanity, his suffering and his death. But those things don't signal his inferiority or failure in any sense. His humiliation was temporary. Do you see that phrase? For a little while. How do we see him now, verse 9? Crowned with glory and honour. Jesus rules as our representative man. We see Jesus fulfilling all that was hoped for humanity... Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. It's Jesus who has everything subjected to him. It's Jesus who now rules the world and the world to come. But remember, from last week, we we live in the last days, don't we? The time between Jesus' first and second coming. So the rule of Jesus is a now thing, but it's also a not yet thing as well. The subjection has begun, but it won't be complete until his return. And yet it's guaranteed, isn't it? Because Jesus has demonstrated himself to be the faithful, ultimate man. He's the real thing, the genuine article, our representative. But do you know the really incredible thing? The really amazing thing? Jesus is more than just an example for us to inspire us. He's not just the demo model that we can only look on with hopeless admiration. That's not Jesus. He's so much better than that. Jesus is our man, our representative man, and he's also our saviour. And that's the next point we're looking at. So we've seen Jesus our man, now we're going to look at Jesus our saviour. Being crowned with glory and honour, it's not the only way that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 8. Jesus also, for a little while, became lower than the angels, as we read. Now, this is a bit weird. Typically, rulers, all conquering rulers, they blaze their way to glory through mighty acts of power, don't they? That's what we see in history, in our world today. People rise to the top, They win victory by flexing their muscles. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. That's not the path he took to glory. Jesus humbled himself. Why? Why would the majestic son through whom everything was made, why would he lower himself by taking on flesh? Well, the answer is awesome. It is awesome. Check out the last part of verse 9 so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's incredible, don't you think? Because of our failure, because of our rebellion, we don't deserve glory and honour, only death and judgement, to be left on our own, to, to face the just consequences of our sin. That's what we deserve. But you see, Jesus never failed, never rebelled and So he didn't deserve judgment. He he could have moved straight to glory, but he didn't. Jesus chose to taste death for us. And not just death, but lower still, death on a cross. And by doing it, according to verse 10, he brings us to glory. He lowered himself that we too might be lifted up and fulfill what's spoken about in Psalm 8, in Him. Jesus is a wonderful Saviour and the rest of the passage goes on to to describe just how great a Saviour Jesus really is. We're looking at verses 10 to 18 and the first thing to notice about our Saviour is that Jesus is our pioneer, okay? Jesus our pioneer. Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Despite what it might look like, the humiliation of Jesus fits perfectly with God's plan for creation. It was all necessary for Jesus to fulfil his role as the pioneer of our salvation, Now, in the army, I'm told, there are soldiers who serve as pioneers. To be a pioneer in the army is a pretty daunting role. These are the soldiers who go ahead of the rest of the troops, who go in the first wave against the enemy. And their job is to clear obstacles, natural obstacles, enemy-laid obstacles, Their job is to clear the path so that the rest of the troops can follow behind in safety. Isn't this a great image of Jesus' saving work for us? As the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus goes ahead of us. He clears the ground for us, dealing with our sin and condemnation. That's why in verse 10, it speaks of Jesus, the pioneer, being made perfect. It sounds strange to us at first, doesn't it? God making Jesus perfect? Jesus remained pure his whole life, he never sinned. But moral perfection is not what's on view here when it's talking about the perfection of Jesus. To be perfect here means to be fully qualified. To be perfect here means to be fully qualified. Have you ever visited the doctor or the dentist and seen their graduation certificate on the wall? I find myself sitting there sometimes checking out what uni they went to and what degree they did uh, and all that kind of stuff just to, you know, check whether it's all legit. That gives me peace of mind. To be qualified for a job matters, doesn't it? We want our teachers, plumbers, pastors. We even want our baristas to be qualified. And fair enough too, given the price of coffee. But most of all, we need a qualified saviour. Most of all, we need a qualified saviour. And that's Jesus. God has made him perfect. He didn't go to uni, he didn't go to CIT He went to the school of suffering. Jesus is qualified as the pioneer of our salvation through what he suffered. It was the only way to bring us to glory. The only way to bring us into his family. And the family relationship is the second thing I want us to notice about our Saviour. Jesus, our brother. Look at verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. How beautiful is that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you, to call me, if we belong to him, his brother, his sister. Isn't that amazing? No matter what what other people think of you, whether you're honoured or despised, it's not a true measure of your value. It's what Jesus thinks of you that matters most. Our crucified and exalted Saviour is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be adopted Adopted into the very family of God where we are co-heirs with Him. Remember that inheritance last week? The inheritance of all things? That is ours too, in Christ. Because He is our brother. We are of the same family. And listen how He speaks to us. He speaks to us directly through the Old Testament Scriptures. Did you notice that in verses 12 to 13? 13. He expresses his solidarity with us. He personally affirms us. He says, I will declare, I will sing your praises, I will put my trust. Here am I and the children God has given me. Do you see all that there? Those quotes from various places in the Old Testament on Jesus' lips, affirming and assuring us that he is with us. Jesus throws his lot in with us, doesn't he? He stands with us and he stands there for us as well. And it's his love for us as our brother that brings us to the third thing to notice about our Saviour. Jesus, our Liberator. Check out verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. By sharing in our humanity, Jesus entered into the devil's domain, this fallen world, in becoming like us. He suffered like us and faced temptations like us. But unlike us, he didn't sin. Sin and death had no mastery over him whatsoever. And yet he still chose to die, not as a sinner, but as our saviour. He died to free us from the power of the devil, the devil who held us by the fear of death. Death is the great enemy of humanity, isn't it? We try to ignore its reality, we attempt to hold it off at arm's length, we sentimentalise it or try to, but we still fear it. We fear its inevitability, we fear what's unknown beyond it, we fear the way it leaves all our efforts in life meaningless. On our own, without Jesus, we are slaves to our fear of death. But Jesus, our Saviour, liberates us. He liberates us from that slavery. We will still face death, of course, but we can face it now without fear, without uncertainty, without terror. Because for those who belong to Jesus, death now is the doorway to glory. Death is the doorway to... To glory. But it's only because Jesus is now at the right hand of God interceding for us that we can even say that. We've seen that our Savior Jesus is our pioneer, He's our brother, and He's our liberator. Now, the final thing to notice about Jesus, our Savior, is that He's our high priest. Verse 17 For this reason, He had to be made like them, stressing that all the time, this passage, isn't it? Had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus is the mediator between us and God. He's our perfect high priest, because he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, once for all. We'll read a lot more about that in chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8 but it's only Jesus that we have someone who can represent us to God. And so if you haven't yet surrendered the control of your life to Jesus, it's not too late. It's not too late. I want to say in all honesty and with gentleness, apart from Him, you're left to face life alone, dealing with the consequences Of your own sin, the wreckage and carnage of that, and the sin of those around you. And more than that, if you're trying to do it without Jesus, you're left to face the justice of God alone. But you don't have to be alone. That's the good news. You can entrust yourself to Jesus, He won't let you down. He's our man, our representative man. He's our savior, our great savior. And finally, he's our helper. That's what I find so encouraging about the very last sentence of our passage today. Jesus doesn't just take his place at the right hand of God and and wait for us to come along behind him in our own strength and in our own power, does he? He doesn't just leave us alone. He continues today. He will continue tomorrow and every other day to be our helper. Verse 18, have a look at verse 18, our final verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see that there? Because he suffered and he was tempted, he's able to help us when we're tempted. That's great, isn't it? Because as Christians, we still fail, we're frail. We fall short of that, that, that Psalm 8 ideal for humanity. We haven't yet reached the final destination of the new creation. Life is hard. We let ourselves down, we let Jesus down, we let others down and then we're let down as well. And so we're still tempted to drift away, aren't we? To give our heart to someone or something other than Jesus. We're still attracted to the idea that there might be another path that will be better than the path that Jesus carves out for us. But brothers and sisters, Jesus promises to help us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it is to wonder if God's way is the best way. He knows what it is to wonder if God's promises are real. Jesus knows that. Because in being made lower than the angels, Jesus experienced life in this broken world, in all its horror. Our very life. God has made the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering. So He's able to help us when we suffer and when we're tempted. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer returns to this idea and expresses it beautifully like this. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses... But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Entrust yourself to him and his care. Give careful attention to Jesus. Fix your hopes and your dreams on him. Look nowhere else but him, because he's the perfect pioneer of salvation, our salvation, who saves us into his family who calls us brothers and sisters, who liberates us from the power of the devil all through his own sacrifice as our great high priest. And as we journey behind him and with him to glory and honour, he continues to help us press on to the very end. So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you so much For sending your son into this world as a man, the one who is fully God and fully man. Thank you that he has done everything, everything necessary for our salvation. And thank you that he expresses his solidarity with us, having been through all the same temptations, all the same struggles that all human beings struggle with. We know that He is our man, our representative man, our Saviour, our great Saviour and our Helper who will bring us safely to glory and honour. Amen. Well,
0: we're going to continue